0: Turn with me to the Book of Acts this morning. We come back to Acts after our series here, after being away from it for a few weeks. Acts chapter four. Just by way of review, we've seen this small fledgling church gathering. We've seen them devoted to each other, to worship. To we've seen them growing. Uh, Here in chapter 4, we've seen them facing persecution for the first time and threats to to Peter and John. And then we saw them just after that gather uh, again for prayer, uh, prayer that the gospel would still advance, that that they would have boldness for witness. Uh, This passage we'll read this morning in, in part shows continued answer to that specific prayer, if you look at verse 33 of chapter 4 here, it says, "...and with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all." Um, But the primary thing we're going to look at in what we read this morning is two stories, two two different scenes, end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, contrasting scenes. One shows us what it looks like when the church is living with the mind of Christ and in a sacrificial and selfless way, in love. And then uh, the second is uh, an alarming warning uh, about the opposite, uh, the danger of sinful selfishness uh, coming into the church. So Acts chapter 4 will begin with verse 33. Hear God's holy word. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land?" While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the church and overall who heard of these things. By the end of 2013, uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle had grown to 15 locations and 13,000 people attending every week. Uh, that year they had collected $25 million in offerings. And then famously in 2014, within a few short months... Uh, Marisol Church was torn apart and collapsed. It, it ceased to exist. Um, of course, the believers still existed and, and you know, scattered to various churches in greater Seattle. Sadly, what, what destroyed this fellowship of believers was not uh, government intervention or persecution. Uh, it wasn't opposition of, of the secular community around them. It wasn't any kind of outward, outside source or pressure but it was sin in the church. Uh, Specifically, the the pastor used the church, the platform for personal advancement and uh, enrichment and growing his brand, and and also evidently for bullying and and control. And these things were allowed to fester, and ultimately they tore the church apart and and destroyed whatever witness for the gospel Mars Hill Church as a church had there in Seattle. Now, that's a, a big, famous distant, sort of easy example to to hold up. This reality, though, the dangers, the lessons in it exist for churches of 500 or 95 or 25 people. The the destructive power of sin is no less potent and painful wherever it, it festers in the church, wherever people in the church become focused on themselves, wherever they decide to use the body of Christ rather than to Be the body of Christ for for the glory of of him. Again, this passage we've read here is a great contrast between being Christ-like, selfless in the church, as God intends, and then the danger of being selfish, uh, deceptively self-serving in the church. So let's let's hear this warning this morning with humility uh, that we would... Glorify God in, in our church. Let's look first at the picture of blessing in a church living out Christ likeness. So, looking at number one in your outline, verse 32 says, The church was of one heart and soul. That's a proverbial saying of the time um, that doesn't uh, mean so much as we might think that they were agreeing on everything, but it's that they were, it was close friendship, is what the proverbial saying means. There's a sense in which they were going in the same direction, they were sharing life together. Um, helping each other to get there. This, this brought them together uh, earlier in the chapter to pray with one voice in verse 26. Um, and this, this togetherness, this oneness is described in this way again in this chapter, verse 32. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Uh, or as the ESV has, they had everything in common. Uh, we actually discussed the, the Greek word that's behind common there in, uh, in chapter 2, it's somewhat extensively, um, this, the adjective here is koinos, means in sharing or in giving. Um, we, we talked mostly about the noun in chapter 2, koinonia, which is almost always translated fellowship in our English Bibles, fellowship, koinonia. And, and despite the way that we have, in English, narrowed that word fellowship, um, New Testament koinonia is exactly described here. It's generous sacrificial sharing with each other, uh, giving and sharing and helping and so on. Why is, why is this the nature of the church? Why is the church described this way in Acts repeatedly? Well, we, back in chapter 2, we looked at 1 John 1 as well as a place where John uses the word koinonia over and over again. He says, if we have fellowship, we have koinonia with God, uh, then we will have it with each other. Uh, His his sacrificial giving of himself for our forgiveness, for our joy, for our life is then reflected in our sacrificially giving and sharing with each other. If someone has a need in the church, we bear it. If someone has a joy, if someone has a sorrow, we share in it. Um, So this is not an idealistic goal here uh, for the the, the church to, to aim for. This is what the church is. This is who the church is. Uh, We see the church here again, thinking and acting like a family. The the description goes on in verse 34. uh, There was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now, what's going on here exactly? Um, Some Christian groups in history, and still today, some cults for sure as well, uh, have, have seen this basically as uh, communism, or you know, not necessarily Marxist, atheist communism, but but communal property. Uh, everyone in the church gave up private property, uh, and, and some of these groups have seen this as normative for the New Testament church uh, moving forward, that this is how we ought to live uh, without any private property. Uh, probably the best modern example of that is the Hutterites. Uh, I'd be interested to know if any of you know any Hutterites or have Lived near them. Um, there are. Uh, I don't think there are any in Colorado, as far as I know. But there are. There are hundreds of Hutterite communities still in, in Western North America, mostly in Alberta, Saskatchewan, especially uh, Montana, South Dakota. But the Hutterites generally take this description in Acts two and Acts four as. Uh, Communal living in the sense that, that you ha- everyone, everyone gives up any idea of private property. So they have no private property, uh, no personal savings, nothing like that. Everything belongs to the community, uh, owned by the colony, as they, as they call it. Um, so I, that, that's not, I think, what's described here for sure. Um, what's described here is voluntary, generous sharing as there were needs to meet um, one of the things that points to that for, for grammar nerds is the, the, the verbs here are imperfect. They're, they're present participles. So in English, it could be they were selling, they were bringing these things. It's, it's an ongoing, uh, grammatically, it's an ongoing thing. It's not something that happened all at once or something that you did uh, all at once in, in order to be part of the church, uh, in order to be let in. They're clearly not selling everything and becoming homeless and destitute. Um, what's described is those who had houses (plural), those who had land, which is not everyone. Uh, sold these things from time to time, and pooled the resources as as there was need. Um, many in that day certainly would would not have had houses (plural) or, or lands to sell and, and still to survive. We're, we're probably um, that description is probably you know anachronistically what we would call the middle class. So the the middle class at that time was about. of the population. Uh, The upper class, as we might call it, was about 5%. So about 85% of the population was very, very poor, um, would not be able to sell their extra houses and things. And yet we get the sense, clearly, that they were all sharing as they were able, uh, sacrificially. Um, As we come to the the Ananias story in in, in a few minutes here, uh, clearly from what Peter says to him, He had control over his assets. Peter says, you know, when you had the land, it it was yours to do what you wanted to with it. And even after you sold it, the money was yours to do what you would. there, There was no expectation that he had to sell the land or that he had to give all the money to the church. That there was nothing about entering the church that had that expectation. So, uh... Again, this, I, this doesn't picture uh, some kind of communism. Kent Hughes has this, this brief, this, this pithy comment. He says on this passage communism says practically, what's yours is everyone's. And Christianity says practically, uh, what's mine is yours. Uh, it's, it's generous sacrificial giving. Probably there's great need for this kind of giving because many would have been poor in the church. There's also evidence that uh, there were believers moving. Uh, from This isn't evidence from the Bible, but from, from, from other sources. There were, there were believers moving from Galilee, perhaps, to Jerusalem, where Jesus did most of his ministry around Galilee. Uh, to be part of the church in, in Jerusalem, that could have created need. And then maybe uh, persecution was already creating some need. So our societies not surrounded by the same kind or the same level uh, of need, probably, that the physical need that we uh, would understand they would have had. But it's this is still the nature of the church, uh, that they, they practice koinonia, that this kind of fellowship that is living and sharing and giving with each other. And, and again, I'd encourage you not to think of needs narrowly simply as, as money, but uh, we ought in the church to be aware of who needs friendship or companionship or counsel or uh, encouragement, or just your time. You and I can be just as selfish with our time and our space as our money. Uh, maybe more so. Sometimes it's easier just to give someone a check rather than, than spend time. Um, we're called to be sacrificially generous as the family of God. So uh, I don't think we're to live like the Hutterites with all of their expectations, but sometimes I think maybe the Hutterites have it a little closer closer um, to the koinonia of the New Testament than Christians who might resemble uh, secular, individualistic, materialistic Americans. Um, and, and the goal, my point is not that we're to land right in the middle. The goal is to be radically biblical, right? Generous and sacrificial, whatever that means. Uh, and so, uh, Luke, before we look at the negative example here, Luke gives us a, a specific uh, example of a person living this out, verse 36 and 37, uh, Joseph. Uh, and and, uh, Barnabas, as he was known by the early church. Luke tells us he's from Cyprus, so he's part of the uh, Jewish diaspora, as we say, so the the Jews that were dispersed across the known world from the time of the exiles. Uh, Jews started settling in Cyprus about 400 years before this. Um, Luke tells us he's a Levite. And again, his name is Barnabas. And, and verse 36, he says, translated, that means son of encouragement. And it's an interesting note because uh, from today all the way back to like the church fathers even, uh, nobody knows how Barnabas means son of encouragement. That's a linguistic reference that's been lost. Bar means son uh, but Nabus doesn't mean encouragement in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or anything that anybody has, has known for the last 2,000 years. So I, I trust Luke knows what he's talking about, of course, but the, the linguistic reference has simply been, been lost. But this is why they called him Barnabas. Um, he, he sold land, maybe back in Cyprus, maybe in Judea. Land he'd inherited, we, we don't know. Uh, Paul, interestingly, in Colossians, tells us that Barnabas was Mark's cousin, uh, and So it's possible he's, uh, he was visiting relatives in Judea, heard the gospel, received the gospel, uh, and, and now wants to generously contribute uh, to the need here in the church. So we don't know exactly what his situation was. But Barnabas, of course, will come up many more times in Acts, 22 more times. Um, and we always find him helping, encouraging, mediating, uh, as one commentator puts it, surely... Barnabas is one of Luke's heroes and, and he takes the opportunity here to introduce him to us. Let's look secondly then at the other example, uh, the warning um, number two on your outline. So lest we think that all that Luke is trying to tell us that everything is just wonderful and perfect in the church, uh, he relates this shocking and sad story from the life of the early church. and of course we can read First Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament and, and find that it's far from a, from a perfect church. It's, it's a body of, of sinners. Uh, but we have a man and a wife here uh, who th- we don't know anything else more about them from the New Testament. Presumably, they're, they've been part of the church. They've come into the church somehow. Uh, Ananias is one of three Ananiases, different ones, in the book of Acts, so we'll kind of try to keep them straight. Um, his name means the Lord is gracious, and Sapphira means beautiful. Uh, but like Barnabas, they sold some property, they sold some land. Uh, verse 2 says, with his wife's full knowledge, they, they, were, they were in on this together, what, what happens here. Uh, and they keep back some of the proceeds from the land for themselves and give the rest to the church. And, and again, there's no reason to think that there's anything wrong with that at all. Um, uh, it, it was not expected or required to Sell all your property to come into the church, as, as we discussed. Or if you did, to give all of it to the church. And, and Peter says that clearly in verse 4. Uh, when it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? He's saying, Ananias, you, you could have done whatever you wanted with this land and with this money. And, and so the problem, what happened here is not, it's actually not directly explicitly stated here in this part of the story, this very brief uh, account of it, but it's clearly implied. In verse 3, Peter says um, that the, that Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Uh, and again in verse 4, you have not lied to men but to God. So evidently, uh, Ananias has lied about bringing the whole amount of the sale of the property. Right. So say it was a million dollars. And I wondered if maybe this is a known property. Maybe it's a beautiful known piece of land here in the area. And Ananias comes and proclaims, you know, here, here's the full amount. And it, he sold it for a million and he brings 500,000. And he says, here's all the money from the land. Um, evident he, he lied about that. Verse 2, in fact, when it says he kept back some, uh, it's it's a very generic description in English. In, in Greek, the Greek word that's used is a word for financial fraud. And my uh, the first Greek lexicon, I looked it up, and the first synonym given is embezzle. Um, so uh, Luke is clearly telling us that, that he's, um, uh, he's doing something dishonest here. Um, again, verse 3, Peter seems to have some prophetic knowledge of Ananias' heart, or we have a, sh- a, a very uh, shrunken version of, of the dialogue here. And so he challenges Ananias. And, and the same scene basically repeats with Sapphira. We're not going to look at, uh, go through all of this with Sapphira, that the same basic thing happens with her as well. So they, they, they lie to the apostles and to the church. That's the basic problem. But how else can we describe their sin? Uh, what, what else is going on in their hearts? What, what's at heart in what they're doing? Well, they're trying to appear more generous than they really are, Right? Uh, and they're trying to get from, from the church, from the apostles, the uh, acclaim and um, uh, good, good thoughts about themselves uh, that would result from that. They're, they're, it's this spiritual hypocrisy, it's manipulation. They're using this sacred and blessed practice of koinonia uh, dishonestly to, bef- to, to benefit themselves, right? To puff up their own reputation, to puff up their status. Uh, we could say they're, they're essentially rejecting sacrificial uh, love of Christ for others, which is what's going on in people selling and, and bringing proceeds and so on. They're sacrificing that to take from others. Their goal is to take from others rather than to give. Right? Their goal is to be well thought of, um, better than they deserve. And so what happens, shockingly? Uh, shockingly, they're both struck dead on the spot. In turn, Not by Peter, but by God. Before we come back to that in a moment, I just noticed one other thing that Peter attributes some piece of this to the activity of Satan. Verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There's an interesting contrast there to the filling that usually happens in the book of Acts, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, And Peter doesn't say this in the sense clearly that Satan gets all the blame here. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira are clearly held responsible in the most ultimate way in just a moment. Uh, But we are to see that like Adam and Eve, who they listened to Satan. They listened to Satan's story and then they sided with him. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira go along with Satan's perversion of koinonia. Uh, The the temptation of his kingdom comes into their hearts and they they choose it over against the kingdom of God, essentially. Uh, They ought to have fled from Satan's influence, as, as James 4 says. They ought to have been aware of the devil prowling around like a lion to devour us if we listen to him, uh, as, as Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. It's interesting, as Peter says that to Ananias, to think that Peter has such personal experience uh, with listening uh, to Satan. Uh, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus warned Peter, Satan is coming for you tonight. He's going to put you through a difficult test. You need to pray. And what was Peter's response? It was essentially, no, not me. I'm fine. Right? And he failed miserably. But again, the thing that stands out most in this passage, the really genuinely hard thing, is is why are they judged so swiftly and so severely? Uh, Why is, at least in the account that we're given, Ananias not even given a chance to repent? He's just struck dead. I think it's possible this, this obviously very shortened telling of the story did include an opportunity to repent, a, an initial questioning like we have Peter with Sapphira. He asks Sapphira, gives her a chance to tell the truth. Maybe he did with, with Ananias, but even so, that doesn't really soften the shock or, or answer our other questions about this, this passage, what happens here. Well, here's how I would answer these questions. And first, just in a general way, and then this will lead into to our lessons on your outline there. I think surely God's holiness and his divine prerogative are, are central. They are at play in this story. Um, we ought to keep in mind, even if, if these things don't, don't fully satisfy our questions, keep in mind that this, for one thing, this is what all of our sins deserve is so what each of us left in our sins deserves. We we'll want to keep in mind as well that God has His perfect plan and purpose, that God does all things well and right. And we can also observe that this what happens here is nearly unique in, in the Bible uh, in history. Uh, this is not God's usual way of acting, of responding to sin. It's certainly not, uh, certainly not normative or a pattern for the church, for our part, <laughs> anything that we are. Uh, supposed to do or expect in the church and so I think there must be particular powerful warnings and lessons for the church and God's purpose here and I think that Luke points us to that as as a major part of the reason for this this shocking occurrence as he concludes this whole um, account in verse 11 and it also reflects verse 5 uh, but verse 11 and great fear came over the whole church and it ends right there, and he moves on to the next, to the next thing uh, in, in his story. That's the conclusion. Luke emphasizes how people took notice, uh, how it caused them to fear and to reflect. One of the ways we could describe Ananias and Sapphira's sin in biblical terms is they fell into the fear of man, right? The fear of man, biblical language, over against the fear of the Lord uh, rather than directing their, their respect and their concern for what, what the Lord thinks and their love towards Him, they were concerned for what people thought of them. Now that, That's what drove their lie, uh, is their own reputation before men. And foundational to the church and truth and relationship with the Holy God is, is the fear of the Lord, uh, this, this loving, reverential, covenantal uh, respect and adoration for the Father God. Uh, well, let's consider then maybe more, a little more particularly some lessons. Uh, three lessons perhaps God has for us in uh, doing this shocking thing, uh, having Luke record it for us. So letter A on your outline. Uh, the first I would suggest is that God sees and knows all, that he's active in his church. God sees and knows he's active in his church. Maybe that seems like a very simplistic, obvious thing but I think it's all too easy for us to forget it, right? not to be as seriously, humbly aware of it as, as we should be, to be complacent about the fact that, that Almighty God is, is present and active in His church. Surely part of the fear here is uh, people gaining the, uh, something of a fresh belief and awareness that God is really present and active in His church, that this is not a game, it's not a social club, it's not a lifestyle uh, this is the body of Christ; it's the household of the living God, as as Peter writes later. And we need that reminder. Uh, there there are many who church, treat the church like uh, not not many here, but generally w- within those who identify with a church, who treat it like a social club or, or a healthy family activity once a week, a set of programs and set of good causes. Uh, We need to never lose sight that the church is the blood-bought family of God himself. Uh, That God is present and active in his church. Uh, The writer of the Hebrews repeatedly asks things like, how much more seriously uh, ought we to take God's salvation now that we know the Lord Jesus Christ? And what God has given us in him. And and he'll ask things like, how much more severely do you think God will deal with us if we trample on Christ? On his grace. Uh, so that's one lesson I would suggest is, is for us in, in this uh, difficult story. Secondly, a lesson is that sin is a dangerous threat to the church. Uh, and all that the church is and is, is supposed to be. Um, again, there are almost no parallels to, to what happens here in the Bible. But there are a few. And I think it might help us in understanding maybe what God's purposes are in and, and thinking about a couple of those. So here are a couple of those parallels. One is, is Nadab and Abihu, uh, back in Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, the sons of Aaron, God struck them down immediately while they were serving in the tabernacle. Uh, they evidently did something, it's not described in detail, but they did something outside of God's instructions for the tabernacle. And we might think, wow, God, they made a mistake. You know, was this really necessary? Was this, um, was this just? But then you think about what their job was. What was their calling? It was nothing less than, than picturing the sacrificial death of the Son of God that was to come. That was the hope of the world um, for undeserving sinners. Their, their job was nothing less than mediating the perfect holiness of God to undeserving sinners. There's nothing more precious or holy or imaginable um, than, than what, what they were doing. And they treated it flippantly, evidently. Evidently, they said, oh God, we don't really like this piece. We're going to do, do it our way. And this happened at the very beginning of, of the whole sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the gift that was, is this crucial, sensitive time for God's people to understand His salvation and his holiness, and the danger of their sin, and the greatness of his grace towards them. They dealt with that lightly. Uh, The other example I want you to think about is is Achan. Uh, You remember Achan's story from the book of Joshua. Uh, This is right when Israel's coming into the promised land, and and Achan kept for himself uh, some of the gold and silver from Jericho. And you remember God had instructed the Israelites Strictly not to keep any of the spoils, not to enrich themselves from this wicked city. Um, and what happened to Achan? The earth swallowed him up. Right? It's another tragic and shocking uh, story. But again, this was at a sensitive new time as Israel was coming into the promised land. How was Israel going to relate to the wickedness and the idolatry of the, the cities and nations in Canaan? Uh, Who would be their God? How are they going to receive this this gift of the promised land from God? Uh, Were they going to trust God to provide? Were they going to follow His ways, follow His truth? It was a sensitive and critical time. And so one of the parallels then with with Ananias and Sapphira is that this is is the beginning, the very beginning of the New Testament church. The New Testament church is a new thing in many ways. The temple is no longer the center of, Uh, The church is not centralized around the temple and the priesthood there. Uh, The the koinonia of the church, the fellowship is something of a new thing. And truth and love are are going to be crucial in the family of God as they function and and love each other and witness to the world. And so God makes shockingly clear here how dangerous and destructive sin would be in the church. Uh, Manipulating others in the church to your own benefit. Uh, deceiving people to make them think you're you're more a person of prayer, perhaps, than you are. Sure, I'll pray for you. Or, or that you're more generous than you are, more important, or, or in order to gain power or control. Uh, so perversely opposite, so damaging to Christ-like witness and to koinonia, I think is the point, part of the point God is making here. And of course, there are countless examples of churches severely maimed or uh, destroyed uh, by dishonesty, by selfish sin, uh, throughout history. Uh, surely we are to be warned. And then, thirdly, uh, very closely related to that point, it might sound like I'm saying the same thing, but I want to state a, a few slightly different implications. Let us see. God cares deeply about sin in the church, uh, and and so should we. Uh, spiritual deception, manipulation in the church is often—it's uh, often more available and used to more destructive ends by leaders in the church. Um, perhaps some of you have have, have uh, been victims of that in some way. Um, here is even in the shocking occurrence here. Here is an assurance to you that God cares, uh, that God is just. He will ultimately judge uh, to the degree that you and I are involved in in selfish behavior that takes advantage of others, or is prideful, uh, we ought to be warned and repent. I think part of the lesson is we need to be wary of and, and attentive to and not take sin lightly in the church. Um, there are very important qualifications I, I want to give to what I'm saying here. This is not to suggest that, that the church is or ought to, we ought to try to make it or pretend that it's a perfect place or without sinners, or without problems, or pretend that we are that, ever. Um, that is another kind of dangerous hypocrisy, kind of the, the, the opposite, uh, right? We are and we will remain a body of sinners. We, we will always need to bear with each other and forgive each other, uh, empathize, overlook offenses. We all need forgiveness ourselves over and over. But there is a biblical difference between that and covering up sin. Or winking at it. Uh, Not taking ongoing, deceptive, manipulative, unrepentant sin seriously. uh, Allowing it to fester in the church. Um, That's why elsewhere in the New Testament, the New Testament clearly teaches what what we call in in theology church discipline. Uh, Church discipline, which in the first place is simply in love, uh, seeing and confronting sin. Uh, trying to win a brother or sister back to the truth, back to walking uh, with Christ. Um, again, not with any kind of pretense that any of us are without sin and, and failure. Um, but that, that even goes so far as Jesus teaches clearly in Matthew 18. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 goes so far sometimes as removing someone from, from the membership of the church if, if a, a serious Sin persists and, and, and humble pleas are ignored. Um, that's, that's Jesus' instruction. Uh, Paul Tripp writes, and, and he's not, I'm going to quote him a little bit at length here. He's not commenting on this passage, but it connects, uh, it connects closely to the, the fear in a sense, the seriousness that God causes in verse 11. Um, he, he writes about a healthy realism, even a, even a biblical fear, you might call it, of, of what sin can do in the church how it can tear things apart he, he writes no one around you has a completely pure heart no one is totally free of sinful thoughts he's talking about in the church uh, sinful thoughts desires cravings motives uh, no one always says the right thing no one always makes the right choices no one is always noble in his or her intentions no one is free from acts of selfishness or self-aggrandizement no one is completely loyal Because of this, he says, relationships in the body of Christ are messy and unpredictable. There we experience some of our most gratifying joys and heart-wrenching pains. I'll pause there. There's there's the realism in what he's written so far, right? It describes all of us. It speaks to the humility we have to have in the church, the forbearance that we have to have with each other. But he goes on to say it is godly and responsible then to be afraid of, to, to be wary, to be Attentive to how sin can create power struggles, divisive ally groups, critical judgmental attitudes, self-centered complaining, disloyalty, ultimately division in the church. He says this kind of fear can be a good and godly thing, a fear that leads you to protect the people in your church from the dangers of the real evil that exists uh, both inside and outside of us uh, is a very good thing. Uh, Again, there are many qualifications and cautions that we could say over against that. Not against it, but with it. Um, uh, I want to say over and over again, I'll I'll trust that you're you're just listening carefully. Uh, One is simply that we need to be realistic in that way about the dangers of of sin, selfishness. While not ever having a spirit of suspicion of each other in the church or distrust, We're, we're still called to think the best of one another. Um, to put each other first, to overlook offenses whenever possible, um, and, and to get the balance uh, right of what I've just said with, with taking sin seriously and not letting it fester. Uh, takes humility. Uh, it takes a shared wisdom together. And perhaps most of all, it takes a genuine love and care for each other. Um, so may God grant that we would be such a congregation of, of sacrificial love and koinonia, uh, and that he would protect us uh, from, from sin and division in that way. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would uh, fill us as a congregation with the sacrificial love of Christ uh, in the way that we care, in the way that we mourn or celebrate with each other, uh, even the way that we think about each other. Uh, Lord, protect us from pride and division. Humble us in in considering your word this morning, Lord, that we would lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives uh, to your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.